0: And welcome to season two of Power Talk. Power Talks are sure powerful interviews from leading youth violence experts, spreading new ideas and sharing best practice. For more information on the work our charity Power the Fight does, and to find out how you can help empower communities to end youth violence, please visit www.powerthefight.org.uk. Today we have part one of a part two interview with criminologist Craig Pinkney on gangs, youth violence, and trauma. Craig. It's great to have you, it's been a while, it's been a while, while, nine years, years. (laughs) I apologise for not the face to face, but obviously I've seen the growth man, just seeing what you're doing and just explain to everybody who's watching Power
1: Talk who you are, what you do, what you're about bro. (laughs) It's always a hard one because I never know what hat (laughs) I'm wearing on any given day, but I guess the... The hats that I go by on a day to day is I'm a criminologist, um, urban youth specialist and also a lecturer at a local university in Birmingham, UCB. Wow. That is, you know, that's a lot <laughs> to be carrying. Uh, lecturer, what are you lecturing in exactly? So I lecture criminology and criminal justice. Right. Um, I also run a programme called Responding to Gangs in Youth Violence, okay. which is the only programme um, running in the country. Um, and also teach youth and community work. So really frontline professionals that are going out to work in either youth communities yeah. or
0: families. And how did you get into this? Like, and take us back a little bit. Just tell us your journey, um, obviously growing up, you've got that Birmingham accent, so yeah. I'm going to assume that you grew up yeah. in Birmingham. Yeah. Right, tell us a little bit about that, just your journey and how you came from like, growing up in Birmingham to becoming a criminologist. Studying your PhD, all that type of stuff. Mm. How did that all come? The journey's about? a long one. That's I think all right. I'll, just, I'll just give highlights. Yeah, give me yeah, some highlights. So,
1: you know, Bromtown, Birmingham, inner city boy, Hockley. Um, front line, where I come from um, in Birmingham. Um, Living, my mum and dad, um, older sibling, older brother. Um, childhood was relatively quite fine. You know, both of my parents have worked in education and still work in education. Come from a very strong family. Um, the Pinckney name in Birmingham in the West Midlands is a big name. So my grandmother and grandfather, my um, grandmother specifically Mavis Pinckney, opened up a project called the Nightingale Project um, in the early 70s. Um, 60s going into the 70s following the wind rush when a lot of the Caribbean communities were coming. And she set up a community organisation from her household. So a lot of our modern day activists within the West Midlands and certain parts of the country, you know, were children and young people that kind of came through that. And then my grandmother was one of the pioneers um, to kind of open up and establish the Muhammad Ali Center. So Muhammad Ali came many years ago to Birmingham, he came to my grandmother's house. Yeah. Um, so my family kind of rings bells for a lot of the elders in the community, for the Caribbean, Jamaican community specifically. Um, And then a lot of my uncles and aunties have kind of gone into, like, activism and always kind of done community projects and whatnot. So it's been part of my DNA, you know, community work, I guess. You know, like with most young teenagers, I kind of lost my way at some point. You know, fell out of school, wasn't really interested in education. You know, um, left school with only two GCSEs. um, Went to college, was in and out of college. Uh... The usual stuff started hanging around with the wrong crowds, wrong individuals, then kind of started to slip, you know, doing kind of, you know, petty crime onto more violent type of things I was engaged in. Um, Nothing I'm ever proud about, um, but that was kind of my journey. I think the good thing about me is that I always had um, something to bounce back to, as I noticed with a lot of my friends. Um, And when I reflect on that now, when we were growing up, you know, I was the only household with another family in front of us were the only two households that had a father in the household. So I always had that distraction, you know, I want to go out. My dad was like, come in Daddy house. <laughs> you know, so you always want to do something. It's always like, ah, oh, your dad's calling you again. So I was always that kid that get laughed at yeah. because my dad was always pulling me in. But I think when I think about that kind of long term now, um, all of that stuff was quite beneficial in the sense that, you know, I had always somebody that was going to pull me back in. So anytime that I slipped, I always had that, that chance to get back to that foundation. Yeah. So when I kind of, you know, uh, got to college, I used to play basketball. Um, so basketball became uh, a sport that I was really interested in. It really kind of took me away from being in the ends every single day. Um, but my dad also always tell me that, pay attention to your education as well. Don't just think about the basketball. So I had ambitions to go to America. You know, we were playing for some of the best teams in the Midlands at the time. We were winning all of the regional cups and we were doing bits. Yeah. And then the English Cup Finals, Birmingham versus East Durham. Okay. I wasn't supposed to play that game because we had another Cup Final the two days after. Mm-hmm. So the, we had a kind of strategy that these six or seven players were going were to take the lead. And then when it gets to the second game, we're going to reserve some of the other players. Went on. I don't think I was on the court. 20 seconds. I just remember the ball going up, rebounded. I was running. A guy pushed me and my... Uh, right knee just kind of planted and continued going. Wow. So I ruptured my ACL, um, wow. which meant then I had to have an ACL reconstruction on my. How old were you at this point? Um, so I was 19, 18, 19. So I was still at college because I got kicked out of my first college. And in the second college, was a situation where because I was so good at basketball at the time, The college was, them days, were just letting people in because we were good credibility to the college. Whereas it's a little bit different now, but them days, it was just, yeah, just come as long as you're playing for, whether it's football or whether it's badminton or whether it's the basketball team, they were just happy to have you there. So, I like with a lot of my kind of peers, I was me and my, another guy, was the oldest out of the whole group because, as I said, we already had done two years in college and then had to do college all over again. Um, So, ACL. Reconstruction. I would say it was one of my most probably depressing times. Yeah.
0: How did you? How did you uh, kind of deal with that? Because obviously you had dreams and hopes of doing one thing, and then what actually happened was it was just like taken away in a moment. How? How did you respond
1: to that as a young man? Well, it was like Monday to Friday college weekends, always playing away to nothing. Couldn't go college because I couldn't walk. Um, couldn't play games, so, I know, so obviously I'm watching my boys and they're saying, yeah, they're going to America and some are saying they're going to Europe to play and whatnot and they're getting opportunities to play in college abroad. I'm just sitting there like... And then I always had my dad saying, see, I told you. <laughs> I told you you should have paid attention in college, so... He had kind of advised me to talk to uh, one of his friends. Um, and his friend worked for Birmingham Youth Service um, and we used to have something called Connections in Birmingham. Um, And it was kind of like a drop-in centre that was based in the Birmingham City Library. Um, And he had a a friend uh, named Wesi. He was like a family friend. And um, I first went there and I met Wezai. you know, big rasta. You know him, and there was a Scottish woman named Christine, and an Asian lady named Yasmin, and they were the three youth workers that used to work there. So I used to go there every single day, and I was just, just moaning, you know, I can't do what I want to do. That's it. Now I don't really want to do the course because I was doing a sporting course, didn't want to do, and kind of like most young people, they do courses because they like the sport, but it was nothing that was going to give me any um, job opportunities once I was going to finish. Um, and they said, you know, you'd be a good youth worker. I was like, listen not really interested in doing youth work because at the same time, I used to also support my coach, used to do kind of child activities like in the Easter summer, um, any half terms, anything like that. I used to always help out and do coaching. So we got paid for kind of doing basketball drills with these young kids, but I didn't really consider it youth work. So when they was kind of giving me the principles of what youth work is all about, they're saying you do some of that stuff anyway. And again, I was still just like, it's not really really for me. And then... you know, they were on at me every single day when I was going up there and whatnot. And I said, you know, I'll jump on one of these courses. So it, was a, it was an introduction to youth work that was running from the Birmingham Youth Service. It was youth workers offering kids opportunities if they were interested in youth work to know what it was all about. Um, but the first um, programme was based in a youth centre outside of my ends in a place called, area called Newtown. And I was just like, nah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to this, to this course. So they was like, what's your problem? Technically, I didn't have no problems with nobody, but as you know, when you grow up in certain environments, you're always told by the elders you don't go over to that postcode because they're the ups, they're the enemy. You know, something's going to happen to you. So I always had that kind of, that fear of going into another community, another area, and thinking something was going to happen. So I'm there panicking, thinking, yo, I'm going to get caught slipping. I'm going to catch up with a man and we're going to have to fight and all of these things. And the youth fuckers was like, I don't know what's wrong with you, so they got me a taxi. Oh, okay. So it was one of those situations where they put me in a taxi. But when I got there and I started doing a course, I started to realise that I didn't have no problems with nobody and I actually enjoyed the course. So I kind of had a first wanting to know a little bit more and then I went on a... Um, it was a it, introduction to youth. It was like a foundation to something to do with youth and community or whatnot, so it wasn't like at level... Three. It was like I probably like a level one or a level two. It's very basic. I think It was like a six-seven week program that was at the youth center from six till eight. Went onto that program and then I kind of started to realize that you know what I kind of like this. And then they were telling me I've obviously them days. That's when youth service used to pay. Um, so I was saying, so they were time, saying, you you're like twenty-eight grand job. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, yeah. So I'm thinking, yeah, I want to jump like <laughs> this. So then. Um, My, as I said, because my family are quite known and my family know a lot of people, I, um, or my dad um, um, and my mum was in conversation with um, my local pastor's wife and she was like an area officer. Um, And she came to my dad and said that, you know, if Craig's interested in doing any courses, you know, I work for the council and she works at the training centre. So she gave my dad a training book and she said any course that Craig wants to do, they're only like short courses. He can jump on them. So my dad was like, yo, your leg mash up. <laughs> like, yo, jump on yeah. to these courses. So I looked through the book and it was like um, counselling, um, working with difficult young people, um, working with difficulties, um, autism, um, management, supervising skills. So it was about eight or nine courses. Some of them were like one day, some of them were like three days. And I practically done most of the book. Yeah. But what I was doing at the time was I was skipping college, to go to the, so even though I was skipping college and they were screwing at me for the fact that I was skipping college, but I was actually doing something. You weren't skipping college to do foolishness. Nah, so I was there actually trying to get onto the courses. So then it got to a position where Christine and Yasmin, the youth workers at the time, were just like, yo Craig, you know not. I think you should try to go to university. And I'm just like, nah. So she's like, obviously you've done college. You've at least completed your first year before you got kicked out the first one. The second one, you're almost at the end of your diploma. You're not playing basketball you're doing all of these little courses, you might as well try and get somewhere. So I'm like, not really interested in the, the university thing, but you know what, it's one of those ones where if they believe in me, then I'm just gonna follow, the, follow what you're saying. So I always say this to young people, those youth workers filled out my application form. I did not fill out my application form, they did it for me. Um, so sent it off and then I got two interviews. So one was at Derby University and one was at Dumontford University. So I went to Derby University, um, kind of had a conversation with the people that was there and had my record of achievement. Because my thing was, even though my qualifications are not up to speed, just look what I've done. That was kind of my, my strength in the, the kind of conversation. And they were kind of looking at it saying, you know what, we do well, whatnot. And I lost my record of achievement coming back to Brom. And I was just like, how am I going to prove to these people now that I'm going to do it? So my thing was, well, I might as well go to Derby. Because they they seen, physically seen the, uh, the record of achievement and I was kind of cool with what they were saying. So when I went to to Le- to Leicester now, I kind of liked the vibe of Leicester City, but I didn't have my record of achievement. So I've gone there and I'm, I've always said that I've got the gift of the gab. So if you put me in a situation, I, my belief is you put me in an interview, I'm going to get the job. I've always had that belief. So I'm talking, 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 talking. I'm noticing the woman's just nodding and I'm talking, talking, talking. And I said, listen, reality is, is that I might not have the qualifications that's enough for me to get into this programme, but based on my knowledge, my expertise and the things that I've seen in my life, can not just only benefit the course, but also benefit peers that are going to be on the course. Yeah. And I don't know if that made the woman think, you know what? Yeah. So they made me do like a little handwritten um, test to see what my writing ability was like, and they gave me an offer. Amazing. Um, so, moved to, to De Manfred, um and, you know, done a degree in Youth and Community Development. Um, and it was a struggle. You know, the first two years, you know, it's funny because I have this conversation a lot now with like, my parents and whatnot. I messed about my first two years. Um, it was only my third year where really things changed. And that was when I met Dr. Carlton Housen. And I would say he was probably the third man in my life yeah. that really challenged me at a level where my dad would challenge me at. And he basically called me a hypocrite. He was just like, you know what, I don't get why you are here doing this degree, but there's something about you that I know that you're doing negative, because what I was doing was going back to Brum and linking cousins and friends and just doing loads of madness. Um, and he was saying, like, you've know, you got one foot in and one foot out, like, you're not making sense of what you're doing. Um, and it bothered me. Mm. It bothered me to the point where I was like, nah, I don't like this man. <laughs> but he was so articulate. I mean, my, like, Dr and was like, he looked like a black panther, you dress like a black panther, I'm talking boots, black jeans, black t-shirt, berry on his head. But the most articulate man I've ever heard at that particular time. And I'd sit in his lectures and he'd always look at me saying, Craig, do you know what I'm talking about? And I'd be like, nah, but I will get you at some point. And that was me telling myself that I'm gonna get this at some point. And then I decided that I was gonna go for a dyslexic test, I don't know what took me so long to go for the test and I discovered I was dyslexic. So then it made me reflect on all of the times in school, all of the times in college where I switched off. And it was because I had a deficit and I would always hide from that particular deficit. So a teacher would just put it on me like, I need you to read that and then tell me what you learned from that story or whatnot. And I wouldn't know how to do it. So my easiest thing was to kick off, to start laughing, making a joke. Everyone started laughing, which meant I was going to get kicked out of the session. So a lot of those things were distractions to not kind of engage with the fact that I had a challenge in terms of my learning, and I didn't want that to be exposed. And I find that happens with a lot of young people when they, when we're talking about education, they do things. And I remember my friend, Anthony Kavanagh, he couldn't read. So the moment a teacher would say something, he'd always start kicking off. And that was just his response of, I'm not gonna get exposed and feel shame in front of anybody in this type of room. And that's what it kind of was. And it just, and then, so the third year, I would say I became a student. Um, which meant then my grades weren't great. Um, but I got my degree. Um, and it's funny because I remember my mum crying. And I always remember my, all my kind of my educational journey. I always remember my mum crying because of the things that I'd done negative. Or the things that I'd done wrong. And the first time I seen her cry because I'd done something good. And even that was confusing. Um, and then that's when it all started. Yeah. So I was looking in the, the, the Evening Mail before it became the Birmingham Mail, and there used to be this advert for a youth work post in a youth centre called Oakland Youth Centre. Now, that youth centre was a historic youth centre in Birmingham, in Handsworth particularly. Um, everybody used to go there growing up. Um, even my parents' um, wedding reception was there, and it was always used for, like, community um, events, but there was a murder that took place uh, a number of years before um, at the community centre. Um, which meant they kind of stuck to community type of engagement and only used it for youth services. Um, but like with community things, people still think it's still related to the murder. So in some of a youth service perspective, young people just wasn't attended. So I've seen this ad every single week, and it's a 27-something, and I'm just like, listen, I've got the degree, this is what I'm qualified for, so I applied for it. Now, when I went to the interview... I seen one of the youth workers that trained me on the introduction to youth work, which I told you about, so I'm just saying, there's no way I'm getting this job then. well, again, put me in that situation in an interview, I got the gift of the gab, made it happen. So the first week I started that um, job, I quickly realised why nobody was applying for it. You know, I'd heard reports of uh, members of staff being attacked, Um, staff going off on stress, Um, young people are trying to smash up the building, and whatnot. And um, one of the things that I kind of learned that there was like a ban, and a lot of young people that were in the building. So these were like young people that may have been in gangs, young people that had done crime, or actually were involved in smashing up the building. And I just said, if in order for us this thing to work, we have to ignore the ban. We have to just start fresh. Yeah. And that's what we did. Yeah. And I think because obviously growing up in Hockley, which is right next door to Handsworth, you know, me going to school with a lot of guys in the community, um, living next door to a lot of individuals that were kind of well known, and obviously family members that are connected to certain type of individual. That was kind of my, my rites of passage. Yeah. So when young people would come in the building, even though they might have been disrespectful, it was the fact that I knew their older brothers. Yeah. So one of the things that I did was one of the sessions was I invited a couple of the people that I considered my oldest, and then they came to the session. So man are like, yeah. how do you know my man? And, and that's when certain things started to change. Um, so it's like some simple things like signing in under registering, or young people—they're not signing their name for all the same reasons why I didn't want to do things. So I probably can't read and I can't write. So oh, it's the Illuminati. Oh, I don't <laughs> want to do this. The government—I'm not writing my name down and all that other stuff. So they write Jay Z or Beyonce and all of these things and whatnot. So one of the things I realised was that I needed to memorise people's names, right. so they didn't have to do that. But then at the same time, they had respect coming in the building because they knew that I was linked to certain types of individuals. And then whilst I was at um, Oakland Youth Centre and I started to see kind of loads of different types of people, I would say that's when really kind of my passion for wanting to understand young people a little bit more really kind of started to develop. And then I kind of wanted to um, educate myself much more. And as I said, in my third year, I became a student. So now I had a thirst for knowledge. So then I decided to do a... um, a, a kind of diploma, but I couldn't get on because again my grades weren't great from my thing. And then I went on to gangology. Yes. Now, why that is significant, and this is where we link, mm. is because at that time I was working with a group of young men um, that wanted to come to an event, and Napoleon had come over from America or Beale explaining the Raymond he, Douglas. Yeah. The, um, for the people that, so know he who was one, one of the with. ex-outlaws with Tupac. right? And he. Um, again was one of the one of the original members of the Outlaws and you know you remember the days when the biggest smalls and toothpat beef oh, and whatnot. But this man had changed his life and embraced faith and came to Islam and was kind of showing young people that the, the gangster lifestyle that he had was not benefiting and didn't benefit him and it was like a talk to the youth. But where Raymond Douglas had the session, It was one of those spaces in Birmingham where you just kind of don't know. So I called him and said, listen, i got about seven boys that I want to bring there, but I just want to make sure what other parties are bringing young people. And I don't know what that conversation sparked for Ray, but it made him contact me a couple of weeks later and say to me, yo, I'm running this program called Gangology. It's a three-day training course. Um, Do you want to jump on?" So me, I'm excited, like, yeah, cool. Mm. Gone to the city council, like, yo, this three-day course with the young people I'm working with in this building, it makes perfect sense. It was just like, nah. (laughs) um, So I did contact Ray and said, you know what? Um, They're saying, nah, I can't do it, and jump on. Um, So I don't want to put Ray into it, but he hollered at me and said, yo, you can go on the first day for free. So I said, you know what? Blessings for that. (laughs) So I've jumped on, and that's when I met everyone. And for me, I was significant yeah. because then, when the end of day one, Raider said, "You know what? Just come for the three days, and that's between me and you." So yeah, cool. not to um, yeah, yeah. not to bait him. What right, that that was, right, right. but white was significant yeah. because day three, a man with white hair, skinny, mm. talks nonstop. Mm. I the session started at nine o'clock, and I got there at half eight. And when I walked into the room, this man was talking. And I thought I was late. And that was Dr. Martin Glynn, And that man spoke so profound about gangs and violence, and it was information that I've never heard before. Mm. And it got me, because bearing in mind, I'm thinking I'm late. Now, nine o'clock's coming now, and he's talking, 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 talking. And bearing in mind, on day one, Raided set up that scenario of telling us that if we came up with a program or project to engage with joint enterprise... <clears throat> that we were going to get, like, some sort of spa package or whatnot. Oh, so <laughs> I had my situation on point. I phoned a man them from jail <laughs> yeah. and all of them. So they was like, yeah, this is what you should be doing. So I was like, yo, my project is yeah. 10 out of 10. So when this man started talking, he was doing something in me that showed me that I'm not a scholar. That's what Martin showed me, that I'm not a scholar. There's a lot of people that talk about gangs that kind of go on TV and everybody's having this conversation about gangs and violence but he was coming from a a place of information and knowledge, and that's why I call him the walking book. So by the time it came to me, everything that I thought I knew about gangs and violence, it just went out the window, and that's how, I'd say, the birth of what Craig was all about then started. Because if you remember, I told everybody to close their eyes, and then I remember I banged the table, and everybody kind of jumped up, and I said, I don't know what that sound is. But my lifelong journey is about discovering and understanding that sound. Yeah, that um, sound almost gave me a heart attack. <laughs> just, just, I was there, I've done it a few times but, um, It was real, Yeah. and I think that's when the journey started. So then linking then with, with Dr. Martin Glynn, I became a student, and you might not know this, but on the break time, you might remember 94% of the people that were there stopped talking to him mm. because he was presenting information and you got to remember in mind that there was heads of service in that building and he was saying that most of the intervention that you're running are not working and they're not going to work. But you got to understand that people are still going to take money to do things that are not working and try and make it out to the society that these things do work. And I came to him and said, you don't know me and I don't know you, but you are going to be my mentor. And that's how I approached him. And I think it was in like within, took his number within a week. I was at his house. So every morning before I went to work, I used to go and learn from him. I want to understand what these terminologies mean. I want to understand what it, what it is. And I'd bring him to Oaklands and I'd, I'd show him um, certain young people that I was working with and kind of give him kind of scenarios. And even when there was like fights or something about to kick off or a man wants to shoot someone or stab someone, I'd phone him and say, yo, what do I do? So Martin's kind of um, understanding and the theorising of things, I would say I brought it into practice. So that's why he was the book and I was the action man. So when Martin went to America and he was doing his PhD at that particular time, he was saying to me, you need to do your master's degree. And that's why I signed up to the master's degree. And I wanted to understand um, violence and I wanted to understand street violence and how it relates to our young people in our communities. And that's why I'd done my dissertation focused on gangs and violence and the transitional stages, looking at lifelong journeys of the points of where young people can get caught up versus where are the places where we can actually try and stop all the system from yeah. criminality. And I think the beautiful thing about that whole process is that when I graduated for my master's degree, Martin graduated for his PhD, so we graduated on the same day. Um, so we've got a significant picture that is, that is the legacy of what I'm all about. And it's intergenerational, which um, is something we
0: don't see often, the intergenerational connection of the older and the younger mm. coming through the academia.